0: This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
1: It is not. This is Buzz Eisenberg, hosting for Bill Newman. And uh, this is a real treat. I've known uh, about Larry Hott. I've been introduced to Larry Hott. We've uh, had a couple of words here and there, but I've never been.
0: And you, sir, are no Larry Hott. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even Larry Hott.
2: (laughs) So it's cool films with Larry Hott. Larry Hot. Good morning. Good morning, Buzz. Good morning, Monty. What's hot? I have a great film for you this morning. This is one of my favorite films of all time. It's a. F- kind okay, of, that was it for Larry that's Hot. That's it. Guys, see, you, see you later, guys. <laughs> this is a film when I tell people about it, their eyes glaze over. Let's do a test. Okay. Would you like to watch a film about a writer and his editor? No, no, nobody wouldn't want to watch that film. It sounds I'd rather have my boring, eyes poked out. Even if the writer is Robert Cairo, who wrote The Power Broker, and is working on, as he says, the fifth volume of a three-volume series on Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> and the editor is Robert Gottlieb, who used to be the editor of The New Yorker, uh, was the longtime editor of, of Knopf, or Knopf, however you want to pronounce it. Um, so yeah, I but still,
1: this this isn't a this, uh, Supreme Court justice with his clerk. This isn't... No.
2: Tom Brady with uh, with his coach. This is this is a backroom researcher. This is a guy who spent seven years writing the Power Broker, which is a story about Robert Moses and how he created New York, and now has spent more than fifty years writing the biography of Lyndon Johnson. Mm. Fifty years. Okay, so there you have start to have a story. Who is the filmmaker? Lizzie Gottlieb, who is the daughter. Of Robert Gottlieb the other character in the film. Oh. So I, I, I heard about this film now I heard it that was great so I, I went into it expecting it to be good but still I was thinking how do you make a film about a writer and an editor sitting down working together? Well interestingly enough the film is almost two hours long but there's only one scene and it comes at the very end of the writer and the editor working together and they wouldn't allow them to have any sound it's a great scene. It's a great scene because they're wandering around the offices of the, of the publishing house and they can't find a pencil. They reject. They reject an automatic <laughs> pencil. They won't work with a pen. So there's real drama there. Can they find the pencil? <laughs> <laughs> but the film opens with do you, basically asking a question. Have you ever heard of the Power Broker, the book? And then they start to show a series of YouTube, not YouTube, I'm sorry, Zoom calls with reporters that are on the news, and behind every single one of them is a copy of The Power Broker. And they say, this is a signal, signal, right? These people have read The Power Broker because The Power Broker is titled The Power Broker for a reason. Because Robert Moses knew how to wield power. You know, anything about Robert Moses is that he was never elected to public office, yet for 44 years he controlled every agency in New York State, and he built the Triborough Bridge and he built Jones Beach and the West Side Highway, and it goes on and on and on and on. And if you're from New York, he did everything, including destroyed neighborhoods all over the city. And the highway builders who did the interstate highways took a cue from Robert Moses and did the same thing around the country. In fact, in Minnesota, there was a famous thing said, There were few blacks in Minneapolis, but the highway builders found them. They got mm. that from Robert Moses. But this film is not really about Robert Moses. It's about the process of writing and the editor who edits that writer. How do you make a film out of that? So let's hear a little clip. This will give you a sense of what Robert Cairo is like. When I was still very young, an old, gruff newspaper
1: editor made me an investigative reporter. And when I said to him, but I don't know anything about investigative reporting, he said, just remember, turn every page. Never assume
2: anything. Turn every goddamn page. That's what the film is really about. What is it like to be a researcher who works for 50 years on a book? And what's it like to be the editor who tries to trim him down? (laughs) There's a great scene where they're talking about the power broker and how many millions of words were in it. Millions of words were in it and the first fight that the editor and the writer had over how do you cut it down? He said, well, maybe we should put it into two volumes. And K-, and K. Rose says, "Looks, I can get people interested in Robert Moses once, but I'm not going to get interested in Robert <laughs> Moses twice. So my favorite scene in this film, and this is the film that, the scene when I tell people about it, they really go to sleep, But because I don't understand why I like it so much and other people don't. Robert Moses and Robert Gottlieb have a fight over the use of a semicolon. Right? Yeah. Uh, how do you turn that into tension in a film? And they bring in uh, Mary Morris, who's the New, York, the New Yorker, uh, she's called the Comma queen. She's the copy editor. And she talks about what. why would you fight about a semicolon? But one of the fun things about this, this is a real inside filmmaking. You know what a jump cut is? A jump cut, you see it frequently in all kinds of movies. And you just go from one thing to another without anything in between. In documentary editing, a jump cut is when you have an interview, and then you cut out a sentence, and you usually... Uh, If you don't cover it with B-roll, with photograph or something like that, you just cut again to that person, so it's a little bit of a jump, right? So what the editor does in this case, talking about the semicolon, they keep doing jump cuts, creating sentences that are combined, which is what a a semicolon does, right? It's kind of a pause where you don't want a period, it's sort of somewhere between a, a, a period and a comma, you know, it's just... Something that ties two sentences together. And this and she, this hair, right, right. Yeah. and she and she does it just on the on the image. And if you're not paying attention, you, you wouldn't see it. So it's subtle. My other favorite thing about this is Cairo's wife, Ina, the long suffering Ina. Right, he's 86, 87 years old. So is she. They've been together since they were teenagers. She is his researcher, his only researcher, and he drags her to Texas. When he's starting work on the Lyndon Johnson biography, to live in West Texas for three years, he says, I have to feel the place. I have to understand what it's like for Lyndon Johnson to grow up there. And she says, I expected to say, you took me out of New York. And she says, I couldn't wait to get out of New York. It was so different here. And there's these beautiful scenes of West Texas. And they go to the old homestead, the Lyndon Johnson homestead. And you realize that this is not a film only about Robert Cairo and Robert Gottlieb. And it is it is about both of them, and it's told by Gottlieb's daughter, so you have this personal aspects to it, but it's a biography of Robert Moses, a biography of Lyndon Johnson, a biography of Cairo and Gottlieb, and the daughter, all somehow woven together absolutely beautifully, perfectly, with great rhythm and finesse. So this is in the theaters. It's coming out in the theaters. I could not find it online, there's a very small amount of, about it uh, visually on YouTube, but this is a compelling film. You don't have to love Lyndon Johnson or Robert Moses or any of the people I mentioned in the film, but if you like filmmaking, you like writing, and you like great storytelling, this film is for you.
1: Well, you are a great
2: storyteller. I've, I've got a question for
1: you. Yeah. When, if, you're, if you want to do a documentary or a biopic and you want it to be accurate, when the editor says, well in terms of making the film work as a film, tweak it this way or that way, are you wor- more
2: worried about the accuracy that that tweak might n- result in
1: or the film that it
2: might help so make? We got poetic license, filmmaking license. So I'm making a film right now. Um, it's called The Niagara Movement. It's about the early civil rights movement and the battle between W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. And we have exactly the same problem every minute in the editing room. And when our advisors come back to us and say, well, that's not entirely accurate, we say, okay, how can we, keep, how can we make it accurate and keep the tension and entertainment there? And this is the problem with documentary films. Right? It has to be entertaining. People don't like to hear that word com- combined with, with truth. right? Uh, you, but you, if you, it's not compelling, if you don't hold people's attention, they're not going to bother watching the information that you want to convey. So how do you, what is the balance between entertainment, tension, conflict, and truth? Right? So we feel this in our politics all the time. Right, just how much do we round off? Right, how much do we approximate, and how much do we tell the accurate, complete truth? And this is actually you know, goes right to that question of why do- doesn't why do not Trump want to ever testify under oath? Right, because he can get away with saying anything he wants unless he absolutely has to tell the truth. Well, same thing. With, I would hate to have my films run, you know, be on on the stand. <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there might be a little perjury there, except your aspiration is. Truth. The, the observation is truth the aspiration is also at the same time entertainment and what is entertainment? it's, it's pacing conflict real, all the storytelling techniques beginning, middle and end that's what entertainment is and
1: uh, Samati so yes I'd like to take a break yes I am the luckiest man in the world for the first time I'm in the studio with Larry Hutt cool films I'm kind of you got me well, thanks, Buzz. You got me. I'm owning it. It's good place. to be here.
0: One more time, what's the name of that film that you just reviewed that we can see in theaters soon? It's called Turn Every Page, The
2: Adventures of Robert... Ka- adventures of a writer and an editor. The <laughs> Adventures of Robert Cairo and Robert Gottlieb. <laughs> and we're going to be right back, semicolon, with Larry Hyde. <laughs> I
1: don't
0: think a semicolon goes there. No, no it doesn't. Who cares? <laughs> we're going to argue about this.
1: This is Bill Newman, WHMP. New York, New York.
3: Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton, your self-worth is worth Fitness Together.
0: I am Marco, and I have always been full of life, full of energy, and always on the go. At the age of 21, I was diagnosed with kidney disease. My life was saved by
4: an organ donor.
0: Receiving a life-saving organ put my life back into play, and I was able to move forward and make my dreams come true. Anyone can sign up to be an organ donor, whether you're 16 or 96. Be a hero. Be an organ donor. Register today.
3: Register at registerme.org, sponsored by New England Donor Services.
5: Every day, financial ads claiming to be different from the competition. Are they? I'm Francis Rayum, the money doctor, and I'm about to make a bold statement. I believe the thing to focus on isn't their uniqueness, it's yours. No one has the same financial situation or needs as you, and no one can help us help you better than you. But the truth is, when it comes to managing money, most of us are not as successful as we'd like to be. No matter how focused we are, it's almost impossible to separate emotion, and being in a relationship can further compound the issue. That's why I developed Hug Your Money, financial coaching coupled with online software and tools to empower you to manage money wisely. We guide you every step of the way to resolve immediate issues and plan for your financial future with modeling scenarios. So whether it's debt, budget, retirement planning, or a financial crisis, having a Hug Coach in your corner is like having a new best financial friend. Hug Your Money is as unique as you are. In fact, it's patented. Visit HugYourMoney.com.
0: Eat more kale, says the bumper sticker. Why assume I'm not eating enough kale? If you eat at Paul and Elizabeth's, there's always kale. There's the Caesar salad with kale, with romaine, or both. There's the vegetarian platter, vegetables sauteed to perfection, including kale. Or just order a side of sauteed greens. Some people treat kale like one of those good-for-you-but-no-one-really-likes-it things. Maybe those people have never been to Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant. Inside Thorns in Northampton. This is Bill Newman WHM and this
1: is Buzz Eisenberg sitting in for Bill and we are with Larry Hutt doing a cool films segment uh, Larry my history. I was born in Philadelphia mm-hmm. went to Atlanta, Georgia came back and went to college in Philadelphia My wife went to the University of Pennsylvania. We have a couple of very cool memories about downtown Philadelphia. And I think you're going to talk about a film that we've been talking about
2: for about 30 years, but there was no film. And there is a film now, and it is called The Automat. One of my favorite memories from childhood in New York is going into the city to go to Horn and Hard Art. The Automat, it was so goofy. The idea that you could take a quarter or a nickel, it was a nickel for a long time. Yeah, it was a nickel. uh, And get whatever you want and sit for as long as you want and watch all these characters uh, and they were, these stories were all over. I didn't realize well, until For I those this who this don't film. know,
0: like yeah. me, when Buzz yeah. explained this to me a week or so ago, what, it, what do you mean? You put a nickel and you get whatever you want.
2: I just, yeah. just want to tell
1: people you're about to hear about the precursor
2: to a vending machine.
0: Well, it's right. And it, oh,
2: this history of the Automat is fascinating. So we should say this is a film. This is a documentary film called The Automat by a woman named Lisa Hurwitz. And I was so charmed by this film. And not so much because of what the Automat was, which was basically a big restaurant where all the food was behind these little glass doors and you put it at the time, it was a nickel or a quarter, always a nickel for coffee, which is an important part of the story. And it spread between New York and Philadelphia and a little bit in Baltimore. And at the time, at its height in the 30s, it was the largest restaurant chain in the world with literally thousands of restaurants just in mostly two cities, thousands of restaurants, distribution <laughs> centers, employing thousands and thousands of people, and everybody loved it, and it was very high-quality food. That's important, because that's also part of of the story. Desserts to die for. So what is, how does the film open? The film opens in an old warehouse with the junked old, not vending machines, but the windows that were used to put in the money, and the woman, the director, is walking through these... Old glass doors where you can see where the money went in and it's kind of spooky and then you hear the voice the distinct recognizable voice of Mel Brooks (laughs) 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 should we hear a clip from the film
6: as boy I was mystified I became a merchant the day that I was
0: in
3: that automatic but this one was the time
5: there was all kinds of people, poor people, to matrons in furs. There was nothing like the coffee at the automat. Right the
0: silverware, here comes the
7: actors. It was right near the theaters, and the food was so
5: fresh.
0: From a silver dolphin spout, the coffee poured
5: right out. Not to mention, at the end, a little spurt of cream. There was nothing like the coffee at... The automat.
1: I love those little windows that opened. And sometimes what you wanted was missing and you knocked on the window, waved to the person. (laughs) You have to understand they
5: had no latte grande. No quizzical baristas in your way.
7: Life changes, things change, we all get a little older, but the older you get, the more you reflect back on what came in the beginning. The Horn and Hardits and the Automats of the world.
5: Use everything I've said. I'm popular, I'm famous. Make me the spearhead of selling this Mishugana documentary.
1: <laughs> if I smile any more broadly, it's going to hurt.
5: <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, I've almost had enough of Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner because they're featured in every film. You know, they're pu- they're pushing... Uh-huh. I don't know if Carl Ryan still alive. but I don't think so. Um, but everybody wants to film them now because they're so old and they're great storytellers. They open this film with Mel Brooks talking to the film director and saying, listen, what I think you should do <laughs> is I think you should show some old machines and then, and then a narration comes on and it sort of explains what the automat was. And then, and then she does it. And then she goes up, Mel, what should I do next? <laughs> so it's playing with the documentary form at the same at the same time, it really pushes the nostalgia. With well, you heard it in the in the uh, trailer. There's all these great old Hollywood clips. Hollywood loved the automat. That's where people would go to meet. And of course, if you had no money, which was a theme, of particularly with the '30s films, you would go in with your last nickel and you get the cup of coffee from this spout, which was shaped like a dolphin. Which original either horn or hard art. There were real people who went to Rome and copied these fountains. They came crazy. back and said, we should do this. By the way, a little of a side, do you ever hear of P.D.Q. Bach? P.D.Q. Yeah. Bach was a. I can't remember, Peter Sheckley was his real name. I didn't have as much phlegm when I heard it. <laughs> but, <yeah. laughs> Peter Sheckley was, is a, i still, still alive, uh, a composer, a musician, who made a career out of the, of the persona of P.D.Q. Bach. And he would make all these crazy songs, uh, pieces, you know, fake classical pieces, and one of them was Sweet for Horn and Hard Art. Which I remember I, as a kid. I remember so, that. So of course <laughs> but, I was. But I, let me let me ask you: Is the yeah.
1: target audience for this documentary uh, the automat? Is, is it people? Uh, is it the nostalgia for people like me who remember Horn and Hard Arts, or is it just just I, as enjoyable I, for somebody who's I'm, never been? I, to I Horn think and it Rush. would
2: be as enjoyable for anybody. But I think what will happen is people will say, "You got to see this film because this reminds me of my youth." Or my which youth. is
1: what yeah. film editor Hollywood film editor Harry Carayita said. You have to
2: see this film. You do, and you know, I came out of the f- watching the film, uh, hungry. Which is <laughs> also yeah. they keep talking about the cherry pie. You know, they, and, and in fact Carl Ra- Reiner and uh, and Mel Brooks, who are interviewed separately, agree on exactly which pie they like best. I remember the banana cream pie. The banana. Oh yeah, they, these pies were a quarter or something like that. Was, but,
1: but we still haven't depicted. Yeah. It comes to you. It, you 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 put in your nickel right. and then th- the thing turned. Watched the thing right. turn.
0: It's like, like the fanciest vending because there was not people that were serving you. You were at a restaurant, but without weight, people. Weight were, but although
2: you could see through the glass and you could see the people running around in the background, which was what fascinated me as a kid. And mm. uh, one of the one of the things the film gets across is that this was where the it was a crossroads of America. Uh, there was nobody there to discriminate against you. So everybody came in. So they, they clear in this film all these old clips. There are people of all the th- ethnicities um, hanging out together, which was unusual you know, in, in, in any city at, the, at that time. But that's also what killed it because the prices were so low. And when there was competition from other restaurants, other fast food restaurants, people, nobody bothered you at Horn and Hardart. You could sit as long as you wanted. So homeless people started going there. And it became a hangout, Hmm. and other people who were not homeless did not want to sit among them. And that was was part of the reason for the downfall. The other reason was they had to increase the price of coffee from a nickel to 10 cents. (sighs) And they started losing people, and then you had places like Dunkin' Donuts. The irony here is that what really killed Horn & Harnat was fast food competition, in order to save themselves, remember I said they had thousands of restaurants? Well, they were in great locations. So they had this idea. What if we bought up Kentucky Fried Chicken franchises? What if we bought up McDonald's? What if we bought up Burger King franchises? And that's what they did, and they cannibalized themselves. They replaced their own stores with fast food restaurants. People, it was this vicious cycle, and people started going to the fast food restaurants instead of the Horn and Hard Arts. So I looked up, when was the last Horn and Hard Arts? 1991 really yes uh, so it was pretty late but it was only one at 57th street in, in new york city and how much was coffee uh, it was probably 17 dollars <laughs> <laughs> so well, we it, still have not before we break gets, i just we still haven't the visual
1: for me yes. think of a revolving door a yeah. glass paneled revolving door going around yeah. each of those compartments was fit to the size of a uh, a dessert about on a five plate, by five inches, or well, sometimes yeah. it was the whole plate, right? Right, For, right, You you would have a uh, chicken with mashed potatoes on right. a plate. And so that compartment, would, you would watch it roll around, and as Larry said, you could see through the glass.
2: Yeah.
1: As th- it was just a fantastic. It, it was,
2: and it was big. These big, it was pl- airy, and fancy. They were beautifully decorated with sh- chandeliers. So it was a classy joint that m- anybody could a go classy to. Classy joint. It was, everything was metal. I, I don't know what the alloy was, yeah. but it was like this- it was a brass. They were brass. It was shiny, and they were and they were polished. So this was a fun place to go for everybody, and an elegant and as, place, and as a kid. As a kid, I mean, you just couldn't imagine, you know, there was play, it was basically a game. It wasn't Chuck E. Cheese, right? just <laughs> <laughs> the exact opposite yeah, of classy. That, exactly, exactly. Well, it's, it's worth noting that
0: um, in the trailer, you do hear Mel Brooks, but also you hear the voice of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You right. hear the voice of Colin Powell, all of whom had their own relationship. Yes, yes. With, With the Horn and heart, yeah. Well,
2: people would go from the Bronx where Colin Powell was raised and go downtown because they could afford it. You hop on the subway with a nickel, and you go into this place, uh, Horton Harder, for a nickel or two, and you can have a meal. And it was basically an adventure. And I would come from Long Island, take the Long Island uh, the railroad train into the city, which was fifty cents, which would got me ten cups of coffee, <laughs> 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 and go to Horton Harder because it was a fun thing to do. And my mother never knew it.
1: <laughs> and for me, I was I was going to college around the corner uh, on. Uh, I think it was and uh, Chestnut in the center of Philadelphia was the Goldmine. And you could get a, a three inches thick pastrami sandwich or something for a dollar and a nickel. Uh, or I would go to Horn and Hard And those are my favorite places to go to lunch.
2: So the Automat is on all your favorite streaming services. It's, uh, I think, an hour and a half film by Lisa Hurwitz. And it's well worth your time. But just uh, don't watch Hungry.
1: There was good news and bad news. The good news is that was an incredibly enjoyable thing. The bad news is Bill Newman, I'm stealing cool film segment. You're not going to get Larry anymore. I love it. All right. Well, fight over over me. (laughs) I'm going to fight over you. Speaking of uh, tension, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about this, uh, I guess, dispute. I'm not a Northamptoner, but this is a dispute about uh, COVID protocols in the Northampton school district and the ad hoc committee. Uh, to to decide on such protocols. We'll be right back with Michael Stein and uh, with, forgive me, Joe Pater. Joe Pater, we'll be right back.
6: This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
3: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Reading and math scores for middle school students in Massachusetts are at their lowest levels in over a decade, according to new data from the National Assessment of Educational Progress, also known as the nation's report card. School districts that already had the technology for remote learning and other resources had less significant drops in achievement, according to state data. Superintendent of Mohawk and Holloman School Districts Cheryl Stanton.
5: In places like Mohawk Trail, we were spending a lot of time at the very beginning of the pandemic bringing our technology and our devices up to where students could engage and staff could engage with remote learning.
3: The most recent test data shows the lowest math and reading comprehension scores since 2003. Vehicles were breaking down this weekend after diesel was mistakenly put into gas tanks at Honey Farm's Shell gas station on Route 202, Daniel Shea's Highway in Orange. Many drivers found out that something was wrong shortly after leaving the last station where they thought they had filled up with gasoline, but instead got diesel. Tow companies, law enforcement agencies, and insurance companies have been fielding dozens of calls. Honey Farm's employees and corporate offices have not commented on the incident. Four teenagers are being charged with stealing and crashing a police cruiser in Springfield Friday night. The teens allegedly crashed the vehicle around 7.20 p.m. and fled the scene. Officers located the teens, all between the ages of 14 to 16, attempting to break into vehicles the following day.
7: A few breaks of sunshine early this afternoon, then clouds return and scattered showers a possibility late this afternoon, a high of 66 to 70. Scattered showers tonight, overnight lows in the 50, mostly cloudy scattered showers tomorrow, 64 to 68, mostly sunny mid-60s on Thursday. 22 News Storm Team meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP.
3: This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media.
4: Yo soy Johan Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Un Tribunal Federal de Apelaciones ha bloqueado temporalmente el plan de condonación de préstamos estudiantiles del presidente Biden, lo que impide que se borre cualquier deuda. Pero la administración está alentando a las personas a continuar presentando sus solicitudes. El fallo que ocurrió el viernes por la noche se produce en menos de una semana desde que se puso en marcha el portal de aplicaciones. Ya se han registrado casi 22 millones de personas, más de la mitad de los prestatarios que califican. La administración podría haber comenzado a procesar solicitudes y cambiar los saldos de los préstamos a partir del domingo. El bloque fue emitido por el Tribunal de Apelaciones del Octavo Circuito de Estados Unidos, que está considerando una moción de estados liderados por republicanos para detener el programa. La secretaria de prensa de la Casa Blanca, Karine Jean-Pierre, dijo que la orden temporal no impide que los prestatarios soliciten alivio y alentó a los prestatarios elegibles a hacerlo si aún no lo han hecho. Según Jean-Pierre, la decisión judicial no impide que el gobierno federal revise las solicitudes ni prepare documentos para los administradores de préstamos. Se espera que la Corte Federal de Apelaciones anuncie un fallo esta semana. En otras informaciones, los puntajes en una evaluación nacional de lectura y matemáticas se han desplomado en los últimos tres años, tanto en Massachusetts como en todo el país. El Estado ha promocionado durante mucho tiempo su desempeño en la evaluación nacional del proyecto educativo, que a veces se denomina la Boleta de Calificaciones de la Nación. Durante décadas, los estudiantes de Massachusetts han obtenido consistentemente las puntuaciones más altas de la NAEP o cerca de ellas. Pero los últimos resultados del Estado en matemáticas y lectura muestran una marcada recesión a nivel nacional desde que se administró la prueba por última vez en 2019, antes de la pandemia. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega, y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP.
3: This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media.
2: This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
1: That's not true. This is Buzz Eisenberg sitting in for Bill Newman. And um, so I live in the Hilltowns, but I understand and have heard about there's a controversy here in Northampton, particularly involving the Northampton School Committee, and here to talk about it are two guests, Joe Pater, who's a professor and a chair of linguistics – got to watch my language – at UMass Amherst. He puts out a weekly local COVID data tracker with the shoestring, and he's the father of two Northampton public school students. Also with Joe is Michael Stein. He's a Ward 4 representative on the Northampton School Committee, he's a political scientist by training, and he too is a father of two public school students here in Northampton. And as I understand it, gentlemen, I'll start with you, Michael, because you're closer to me. Well, we actually to meet to start, if that's okay for you. We're going to start with <laughs> Joe, who's furthest from me. And Joe, why don't you lay out, uh, there is a controversy. Yes, and, that, and so and that's I, why
7: I wanted to start, to tell you about why we wanted to come on the air. Today. Please do. Yeah, so um, we happened to hear Josh Silver's appearance last week, and he is a member of the Ad Hoc COVID Committee, as is, as is Mike. and um, Michael Stein, who's Michael here Stein, with us. Michael right, yep. Stein, right, with us. And, and, and our feeling was that he had left out some important information that we wanted to share with you, and also that he gave the general impression that their recommendation was something that just any reasonable person would agree with, and that, you know, there's just a few people on the school committee who are pushing back against it, but any reasonable person would agree with it.
1: So I did listen to Josh's piece. It was about six minutes long. I listened right. this morning. So why don't you tell us what the ad hoc committee's recommendation is first, and then we'll talk about what sure. you disagree with.
7: Sure. So their recommendation is to adopt the Desi guidelines for Northampton Public Schools. What does Desi stand for? That is the department... Actually... Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Thank you very much. So I do know something about the DESE guidelines. I've got them right in front of me. And so one phrase, and this is the phrase that we're going to focus on, the Commonwealth is not recommending universal mask requirements. Every other state has guidelines that are in line with the CDC and the American Association of Pediatrics who say that universal mask requirements are a good idea when COVID rates get high enough. What the DESI language means is that our school committee and our public health people don't have the ability to impose a mask requirement if the hospitals fill up, if teachers are out, if students are out. You might remember that last spring, our public health group did need to impose a universal mask mandate to keep schools open. So it's that aspect of it that we think is not reasonable, that lots of other people think is not reasonable. So the, the committee voted. The, the one thing that, that, that um, Josh left out. Which committee? The ad hoc COVID committee. Got it. Voted four to two to recommend this. Josh made it seem like any reasonable person, in fact, everyone involved thought it was a good idea except for the school committee. Well, there were two people on that committee who voted against it. Those two people were the external medical experts.
0: And they voted against it for just the reason that I explained to you right now. And just to clarify, it's that if you were to adopt the DESE guidelines as written, if an emergency situation happened, it would not allow Northampton schools to impose a mask mandate. That's That's correct. Is it binding this ad hoc committee's recommendation or is it just that, a recommendation? It was
7: a recommendation to the school committee. And then I'm going to pass it off to Mike, who's on the school committee and receive this recommendation. Then the school committee dealt with it in their last meeting.
1: May I just rewind the tape a little bit? Sure. Who, and I should ask you, Michael Stein, uh, who who is it that created the
6: ad hoc committee? Oh, how many hours do we have? I will explain this as quickly as I can. <laughs> okay. And before I, I begin, I should say that, you know, I'm here as a member of the school committee, but not on behalf of the school committee, which is important because in our rules, only the vice chair can speak on behalf of the committee. So I'm just here as one member. Um, The ad hoc COVID policy committee was created in March by the school committee in response to an open meeting law complaint about the school health advisory committee, of which there were two school committee members sitting. And so our lawyer advised us that to respond to the complaint, we should form this ad hoc COVID policy committee that would be open. And the mandate that the school committee gave in establishing this was to staff it with medical experts, epidemiologists, and physicians that could advise us on specific aspects of our COVID policy. So it was formed in March. It wasn't seated until June or July for a number of reasons that we we could talk about but don't have to. Um, So that's that's the origin. That's where it came from. And the, the remit of it really was to advise us on our existing policy. So in August, the school committee passed an update to our face masks and face coverings policy, which is sort of where all this mitigation is. And um, at that time, asked the ad hoc advisory committee to give specific advice around a few areas. One of them was around metrics of when we would impose universal masking. So what was voted on was if the CDC combined level goes to high, we would automatically go to universal masking. The second was... Um, regarded uh, related to conditions on the ground. So like in the spring we had a situation we were not high um, and there's reasonably we won't be high in Hampshire County based on our demographics but we had a situation where we had 1,400 staff absences, 12 clusters, really looking at having to close down the schools if we can't get the spread under control. So a universal mask mandate was imposed then for four or five weeks which significantly decreased the spread and allowed us to keep the schools open. So what was asked of the Ad Hoc Committee was, can you advise us on some ways to look at this data? Because things are changing. We're not collecting, we're not doing surveillance testing. We're not collecting case counts in the same way. Is there wastewater we can look at? Like what other things should we be looking at to know if we're going to have a problem? And sort of advise us on what those might be. Um, They also wanted some language um, and some advice on the language around um, in-school exposure and um, isolation and quarantine. What's in our policy is what's in the CDC's guidance and what's in the Massachusetts guidance, which is the DESI guidance here. The DESI guidance aligns almost entirely with the CDC gu- guidance except for masking.
1: So I, I'm going to ask a question. Yeah. Again, I'm not a Northampton, it, right? uh, Northampton... Resident. Resident, thank you. <laughs> um, but I do know that you do have a Board of Health here. In, yeah. in What's the role of the Board of Health vis-a-vis the school committee or the ad hoc committee that we're talking about?
6: So the Board of Health has... Um, if the Board of Health orders a universal mask mandate in the city, that supersedes anything the school is doing. But the, beyond that, the Board of Health has said this is a, a decision for the school committee. We are not, you know, making that decision for you. The state has delegated these decision-making powers to local control, which in this case is the school committee. The How de- about the
1: mayor? Can the mayor supersede the school committee?
6: No, the mayor's a member of the school committee. Okay. And... Um, So she's one of the 10 members. So she by herself cannot supersede the school committee um, in this way. Um, The department of, well, I don't know what her new title is, but the former Department of Public Health uh, person in Northampton was on the shack and was invited to serve on this body as well and declined. So we're seeking input from pretty much everybody, trying to beg as many experts locally as we can to be on it. And we've you know, it's been a tough road for many reasons. People do not want to put themselves. I know. In these I, you know, I host yeah.
1: the afternoon show here, the Afternoon Buzz, and I had Doctor Jonathan uh, Bayek on last week. He's an immunologist, and he's Bay State's leading immunologist in this regard. And he told, he talked to us about the two uh, new subvariants that are coming, which are not Omicron subvariants. They're Delta subvariants that he that are happening in many parts of the world, and he sees coming here. And the vaccine for Delta, the original vaccines. Is effective in treating that," he said. Um, so I, I wonder, does that kind of information is that available to you guys? Does that play into your thinking?
6: So we should be getting a lot of the uh, operational data and the the sort of on the ground data communicated to us from this super uh, the school health Advisory committee, which is comprised of the superintendent, the director of public health, a number of uh, a couple of public nurses that work in the department of public health. It's got a new name now, so I know I'm screwing that up. It's like you know, Health and Human Services, I think. Um, and also some of the school nurses. So they should be providing us with some indication of how many cases they're seeing in the schools, what they're seeing in terms of the wastewater. Northampton is measuring its wastewater again at a local level. It is or is not? It is. It started again in August. That's um, not available. None of this has sort of been communicated to the, the school committee or to the public in any, any way I know.
1: Joe Pater, uh, why do you think people have dug their heels in so on this one sort of so it's one issue?
7: Who, who's digging their heels in? I'm not. Well, sure that's what, what I'm trying
1: are. to figure out because I, I know that you and Josh see these very differently on the yeah, on the so issue. Yeah, so I, I, I
7: I'm not I can't speak to to Josh's state of mind on this. I have no idea. Um, I I, I think I explained to you why I think this is important. Yeah, yeah.
6: I mean, I do think that, uh, like, with so many issues that are facing school boards across the country, we're, we're seeing the same ones here, um, whether it's regarding critical race theory or accusations of grooming children that tend to be anti-trans positions or, you know, misinformation around um, masking, right? So we're, we're facing a lot of those same pressures. Um, it's one of the reasons the American Academy of Pediatrics came out before the beginning of the school year, again, to say, again, there is no evidence that masks harm kids' language and learning development. Here are all the reasons why. Um, But yet it is a very virulent um, notion that a lot of people believe. And I think from what I see when people write to us, the two things when they engage with you as a school board member you hear are concerns that masks are hurting kids or concerns about um, an infringement on rights. So like a very strong libertarianism.
1: Yeah, well, also the the sort of elephant in the room, in my view, is the... uh, the national report card that came out yesterday, the, the assessment that showed that both in math and in reading skills the, the largest decrease in competency in math from 2019 until now was just reported 25% lower and in verbal skills was uh, in reading skills, excuse me. So yesterday I had a superintendent of the Mohawk Trail Regional School, Cheryl Stanton was on the show, talking about just that and that school committees are really focused throughout the Commonwealth on, uh, throughout the country, on. Oh my God, is this because of virtual learning? Is this because of you know uh, uh, Zoom classes as opposed to in person? Joe, I,
7: I, I read a really compelling analysis in the Atlantic recently. I'm afraid I don't have. A I name. saw that. Yeah. yeah, which which said it's could be because a lot of kids had family
1: members who died, and that disrupted learning. Yeah. Oh my God, there's so much to be thinking about. We are here with Joe Pater, Michael Stein. They're both parents of children in the Northampton schools, and they're both very much interested in uh, masking and in a, this, I guess, controversy over whether to follow the statewide uh, guidances or to, for Northampton to require a little bit more strident uh, requirements in our schools with respect to masking. We, I hope I said that right. We're going to be right back after these messages. Stay with us.
2: This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
3: Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Corsello Butcheria? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Corsello Butcheria, the Italian-style butcher shop in East Hampton. The inspiration is a small, family-run butcher shop in Rome. The meat is from local farmers they know and trust. Stop in for steaks and sausages, chops or chicken, or just a sandwich. Corsello Butcheria in East Hampton. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Life moves fast and kids move at the speed of life. Well, Franklin First is here to help you and your kids stay in control. With Franklin First Federal Credit Union's Teen Checking Program, your teen can manage their money and stay on the go while you enjoy peace of mind. Conditions apply, so see your Franklin First professional for details and requirements. Or start at franklinfirst.org. Franklin First Federal Credit Union, member NCUA.
1: What's more important, a great paying job or feeling fulfilled at the end of the day? Well, when you work at Cooley Dickinson Hospital, Northampton, you won't have to choose, because you'll get both. Cooley Dickinson Hospital has great paying and fulfilling openings in environmental services and transport. And on Wednesday, October 26th and Thursday, October 27th, they're holding on-the-spot interviews from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. at the north entrance, 30 Locust Street, Northampton. Or visit
0: CooleyDickinson.org today. State Street Fruit Store. What the heck is a fruit store anyway? Well, State Street opened in Northampton in the 1920s as a fruit store, selling local fruit and other produce from the valley. And even though State Street has grown to be much more, deli, wines, spirits, they are still a fruit store. And right now, State Street and their sister store, Cooper's Corner in Florence, are under an avalanche of apples and everything from the orchards up and down the valley gala's and honey crisps, macoun and the good old fashioned macintosh, along with pears, plums and other delights from the orchard. Northampton has always been a fruity place. We are what we eat. State Street Fruit Store in Northampton and Cooper's Corner in even fruitier Florence. This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
1: And we are back with Mike Stein and Joe Pater, both parents of children in the Northampton School District, both uh, very concerned with um, the COVID protocols that are being implemented by the school committee and um, both involved in the controversy. Matipo Money, you had a question you wanted to ask.
0: Yeah, the pressure that I get from some of the people on the Ad Hoc Committee is that what, Northampton is an outlier, that Northampton is trying to go above and beyond what other school districts in the area and in the state are doing. Is that a, a, a fair impression or is that not actually what's happening?
7: Well, if, if I were talking to them, I would ask them what their evidence for that is. So how many school districts did you say there are, Mike?
6: I don't know because of regionals right but there's what 351 51. In so, cities? so right?
7: I don't know if anyone actually knows what all the school districts are doing. I happen to have information from someone who is involved in discussions at Boston Boston Public Schools that make me believe makes me believe that they are going beyond the bare minimum of the district. So nothing in Desi says you can only do what we're doing. And I don't know why Northampton Public School would do the bare minimum rather than going a little further to protect the health and safety of our children, like it seems to me Boston Public Schools is doing. Now, and one thing, speaking of Boston Public Schools, Boston Public Schools in the spring kept masks on when Cambridge and Newton took them off. There's been a study that's come out that's shown that that did
0: lead to a reduction in the number of COVID cases in Boston public schools. So the problem, it seems, with what the, the, the dichotomy on the on the ad hoc committee, the school committee is, is DESE's guidelines don't go quite far enough, but the CDC's do. They say there is a time and a place for universal masking. Desi says there's never a time and a place for universal masking. Would it be amenable to the ad hoc committee and thus the school committee in Northampton if the CDC guidelines and whatever their uh, parameters are for universal masking were adopted in the Northampton schools?
6: I mean, I think we'll find out at the next full school committee meeting. There's a, an emergency one that came up for November. Um, that actually sounds like, it's not an emergency, a special meeting, I'm sorry. But um, I, in August, the policy that was passed was that. It was made in accordance with the CDC guidance. So the existing policy on the books is in accordance with the CDC guidance. It is in accordance with the AAP guidance. Which is? Uh, The American Association of Pediatrics, which also... Not AARP. Yeah, (laughs) not... That's when I start getting
0: letters from them already.
6: I regret regret not signing up at 25 when they accidentally sent me one. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so I I think that's where we already are. Um, And I think the actual question is not why don't we want to follow DESI. It's why is DESI not following the CDC guidance just on this point? when every other state in the Northeast is. All other states in the Northeast are recommending, in line with the CDC, that under certain circumstances, universal masking would be a good idea.
0: And Desi, of course, uh, once again, is the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Do you think Northampton schools should be masked right now, given what data you have access to? Should there be universal masks in the Northampton schools Which, by the way, both you
1: and Joe are masked right here in the studio right now. Yeah. Uh, because I thought your your glasses were fogging up because you were so attracted to me, but no,
6: <laughs> it's that
1: mask. It
7: could be both. Who
6: knows? I'll <laughs> just I'll just
1: clarify that I take my mask
7: off to get on the mic. That's true. Okay, yeah. <laughs>
6: um, I would say right now, no, um, with a caveat, which is we have like really poor visibility into like the data, so it's hard. You know, if the data showed a, a reason to do it at this moment, I would, you know, yes. But what I see right now, no. We are. Uh, at CDC medium in Hampshire County, it just elevated again the end of last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the combined CDC metric, and we are at uh, high community transmission spread. So there's a lot of COVID in the community, but to my knowledge, we have not experienced class clusters or um, mass absences of staff and, and uh, teachers due to COVID infection.
1: I wonder whether Desi, in the backdrop, and you mentioned it earlier. You you, you talked about the libertarian view. Obviously, I'm very jaded and, and and annoyed when I hear about people who are anti-maskers masks or maskers, um, or anti-vaxxers because I think it's so short-sighted and unlearning things that we've learned for decades. But in any event, maybe the department feels that it has to respond because when people's children are being forced to wear masks at school, some people are truly offended by it. Joe, do you have an opinion about that? Should that motivate the department or... Well, I I think there's a
7: lot of things. Um, People are offended. Some kids, you know, have legitimate reasons why they shouldn't be wearing masks, and um, the the school policy allows for exemptions. Um, But, yeah, it it does get people worked up. It's clear that it does. And, And a big thing that I worry about is that those very loud, worked-up voices end up dominating the conversation. And so that's why I feel like I have to say something sometimes.
0: Mm. Some of the things that these people that are getting that you're talking about get worked up about is that they feel like we, for a long time, we, in Northampton and this area in general, followed the CDC guidelines, wore masks when we were supposed to wear masks. And now when they're not recommending that as much, that we're holding on to it as a crutch, that it's a fear-based thing. What's your assessment of that take on on the perspective uh, within the ad hoc committee?
6: I mean, I think that Northampton is tracked pretty closely to the rest of Massachusetts, if not to the rest of large segments of the country in the way it's approached universal masking, either at the Board of Health level or at the school level. I mean, our universal masking ended in March of last year um, after a number of our students were eligible for vaccines. So it was clearly tied to some sort of metric to say, hey, we think cases have come down from the Omicron surge. More of our students are able to get vaccinated. At this point, we're going to make this decision. And the, the current policy is also an evolution, right? It's, it's saying, here's what the current guidance tells us based on everything we know now. We know that death rates are divorced from infection rates, so we're not looking at the transmission rate. Like We're not, like, we're not doing all of these things. So like I, I think that the policies have kept up with where the science is. I think the acceptance by some at... Um, any mitigation matters that to help the vulnerable, to help the elderly, they don't want to do, and they feel like it should just be a choice. And you hear a lot about choices and rights. And I don't think it's. I think at that level, it's sometimes disconnected from public health.
1: In the minute and health. a half that we have left, uh, Professor Joe Pater and political scientist Michael Stein. Which one of you wants to tell our listeners what you would like to hear them do, what they should do to inform themselves or to participate in your process? Uh, who wants the last word here? Um. You can inform yourself by going to the Northampton Public Schools
7: website, finding out when the next school committee meeting is. You can send a letter to your school committee members if you have views on this. You can um, participate in public comment. Those are all ways that you can get involved.
6: And also, if you are interested in looking at our actual policy, feel free to email me or another member. I'll be happy to share with you. Michael Stein. Um, You can find my email address on the Northampton Public School website. I'd be happy to engage with any constituent more about this. Um, Yeah, and and I think what I would want is for Northampton to continue living its values, making, you know, really rational science-based decisions with an eye towards protecting the vulnerable, the most at-risk students we have and members of our community that are disproportionately affected by COVID-19.
1: We only have... 30, 30 seconds or so. Monty, in Franklin County, in Montague, is there a similar discussion, debate going on?
6: Not
0: in the same way, no. Northampton is unique in so many ways. In and this so is many. one of them. Right. <laughs> and we all nice. love Northampton. So, thank you so much. Joe
1: Pater, Michael Stein, thank you for your activism. Thank you for being thoughtful parents. Thank you for having us. And thanks for the great conversation. This was awesome. Terrific. And uh, this is Buzz Eisenberg for Bill Newman. It's a pleasure to be with you, Monty, in the studio. And Bill... Always. Uh, We're thinking of you. Everybody have a good day.
4: This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
3: In the United States, one in four women and one in seven men are victims of sexual assault in their lifetime. Sixty percent of Americans
6: know a victim of domestic violence or sexual assault. These are your neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, maybe even family members. 75%
3: of Americans say they would step in and help if they saw even a stranger
6: being abused. More and more people are stepping up and talking about it. Let's make it happen. Nelquit, New England Learning Center for Women in Transition, offering 24-hour crisis line support, walk-in appointments, counseling, safe plan legal services and supportive supervised children's visitation if you or someone you know needs Nelquit, please reach out to them they'll be there 479 Main Street Greenfield
7: nelquit.org, N-E-L-C-W-I-T.org or call 772-0871 live local news and talk for 770- Northampton
0: and the valley oh, since 1950
1: WHMP Northampton WHMQ Greenfield Under. Northampton radio group station